Hey, welcome. Thanks for coming this far with me. If you grew up in the Unification Church, you can probably skip this. But for those that didn't grow up in the Unification Church, I want to take a little bit of time to explain what it's all about. And I also want to make some connections between the Unification Church and other cults. Because at the end of the day, the Unification Church is not unique. They've simply remixed some of the components that pretty much all cults employ to gain control over their members. And the purpose of this is to try to decode some of the group speak that you're going to hear throughout the episodes that follow. So I'm going to try and give a potted history of the Unification Church along with a guide to its ideological underpinnings and some of the vocabulary that has fallen out of it in under 15 minutes. Here goes. According to Reverend Moon, sorry, let's go back. Reverend Moon uh, was born in 1920 in what is now North Korea. According to him, when he was 16, he experienced a revelation from God, and God told him the following. Jesus Christ was not meant to die on the cross, and therefore Jesus' mission was incomplete, and God needed a new Savior to arise You'll never guess who Reverend Moon was told should be the new Messiah. Shocker, according to him, God told him that it was his job to become the new Messiah. And what he had to do was roughly as follows. He had to right the wrongs of Adam and Eve, and those wrongs specifically were the act of falling, as we all have heard about in the story of Genesis. However, Reverend Moon's take on it is that the act of falling was effectively Eve having sex with Lucifer and then having sex with Adam. And as a result, all of the suffering in human history stems from that one act of quote-unquote illicit love. And every generation that followed had unpure blood They were tainted with original sin through their blood lineage. And Reverend Moon, again, this is going to shock you, Reverend Moon claims that he has the ability to remove that original sin. He alone has that ability. And the way to do that is by people getting married and then quote-unquote blessed by him, which would then mean that their quote-unquote second-generation children, like me, would be born without sin. You see what he did there? He created his own mythology wherein he was the one who could anoint people as either saved or not saved. And within that, he also created a whole new class of people, people that he deemed as worthy. This is what cults do. All of them. They create an artificial divide of us versus them. In this case, the divide was simply, were you married by this guy or were your parents married by this guy? But in that division, the organization is able to force people to see the insiders as superior to the outsiders. And they're also able to justify all manner of deceit if it is geared towards outsiders 
as well as insiders, as long as it's in the name of the group. That creation of artificial groups was a big part of my upbringing. You're going to hear a lot about first-generation members and second-generation members and the blessing, which again was the marriage of Reverend Moon that somehow separated the worthy from the unworthy. I just want to make the point that all that that does is create artificial divisions between people. And that artificial us versus them, that artificial fear of quote-unquote outsiders was the foundation of my upbringing as well as the upbringing of others born into this cult and other cults. And again, I want to make the point that is not unique to the Moonies. All cults employ this tactic of creating an artificial division between us and them. Some of the other foundations of my upbringing and the upbringings of the kids that grew up in this cult around me were extreme fear and shame about sex and desire, coupled with also extremely graphic descriptions and depictions of sex by Reverend Moon, who loved talking about it in his speeches, which we were subjected to for hours and hours, because we were meant to not be sexual beings when he didn't want us to, and then all of a sudden when he said we could, we were meant to flip a switch and become sexual beings, but only with the people that he said we could. And that, again, is a form of control that this cult and many other cults employ. For those of us whose parents were blessed by Reverend Moon before we were born, thus purifying our blood lineage, we were referred to as second generation or blessed children and as so-called second generation we were told that our sole purpose was to create a third generation of theoretically even more pure blood lineage and that if we did anything else we would suffer a fate worse than satan in the spirit world upon our death all of these concepts were drummed into us from a very young age and across a wide variety of indoctrination programs sponsored by the institution as well as by our parents. And I have to note that everything I've told you about so far, I remember learning by the age of four. In fact, my earliest memories are of being told everything that I've just told you. So those are some of the delightful underpinnings of the upbringing of myself and many other second generation in this cult and in other cults, which we will talk about in detail in this series. There are some terms that sprouted from those ideological underpinnings that you may need to be aware of for the rest of this series to make sense. I'm going to try to clarify some of them now, but honestly, if things aren't making sense, then just ask me in the future and I'll try and explain. Here we go. Some of the terms, um, probably top of the list, true parents, as in true father and true mother. This is a reference to Sun Myung Moon's claim that he is in the position of the second coming of the Messiah and the only one who could bring people back 
into the pure slash true lineage of God's love that was lost during the fall of man. So that led to the true parents, Sun Mung Moon and his wife, as well as the true family, which will be referenced throughout this. There's a lot of Korean nationalism embedded within the church, and we'll talk about some of the reasons for that throughout this series, but that has led to the proliferation of Korean terms throughout this series and throughout my upbringing and the upbringings of kids that grew up like me. So I'm going to run you through some of the applications of that. One of them probably right off the bat is the usage of the term nim at the end of someone's name. It's an honorific term in Korean that you use to pay respect to someone. And we were forced to call everyone that came from Reverend Moon's family, as in the true family, according to him, we were forced to add this word nim to the end of their name. So for instance, he has a daughter named Injin. Any other person in Korea would just call her Injin, but if you're in the Unification Church, you're forced to call her Injin Nim, simply because of who her parents were. And you will notice from time to time throughout these interviews that some people just slip into using that honorific term because it was beat into them from an early age that that's what you call these people. It just slips out when we're speaking about these people, even though I guarantee you no one who's being interviewed here has any wish to bestow any honorific upon any of these people. And I just want to say on a personal note right now that if you ever hear anyone say Nim in this series, then just remove the Nim and add the word dick or ass. As in Hyojin ass. Injin dick etc. Because that's what I really think of these people. Let's talk a little bit more about a bit of Korean here. Um, another term uh, that has been referenced is a hanbok, which is a traditional uh, Korean garb, effectively. Another one is hundoke. Um, this is a church concept. I don't know exactly what it means in non-church Korean, but uh, it effectively refers to the practice of in many cases, waking up early and reading the words of Reverend Moon. There will probably be other Korean terms that are referenced here, and I'll do my best to try to clarify those along the way. But again, please uh, feel free to hit me up on Twitter if, uh, if anyone wants anything clarified. I want to go back to Reverend Moon for a second. He had 13 legitimate children and at least one illegitimate child. And the discovery of that illegitimate child was a turning point for a lot of people who grew up in the church. And we'll talk about that in detail throughout this series. Reverend Moon lived a lavish lifestyle along with his family. We're talking multiple mansions around the world, the best hotels, servants, more or less at his beck and call 24-7. And he did all that on the backs of free, untaxed labor in the form of church members going out and doing fundraising of various types for him. He also did it 
through his web of businesses, which we will unravel a bit in this series. And he used the money that he gained to try to become a political influencer. And most notably in the 1980s, he started the newspaper, the Washington Times, which has been a right-wing voice in Washington for a long time. And if you've been paying attention to politics for the last few weeks, um, the influence of the Washington Times should not be underestimated. It was the Washington Times that printed the conspiracy theory that the, the U.S. Capitol rioters were Antifa members. And it was that article in the Washington Times that was quoted by members of the Senate in the following day when they were trying to defend their actions. That's one example of the influence that that paper has to this day, and it's been instrumental in the right-wing shift in America. So it's not an understatement to say that the rise of Moon and his family and his political influence have had lasting consequences on American society. And where does that leave the church now? Well, Reverend Moon died in 2012, and it will probably come as no surprise that his remaining children and his widow engaged in a sort of Game of Thrones campaign to try to take power from each other in various ways, and the whole thing has kind of splintered into a variety of factions run by well one's run at least one one is run by his widow few others are run by few of his kids and they've all been fighting there's been lawsuits um it hasn't exactly been the behavior that you would expect of the perfect family probably the most noteworthy of the splinter groups is run by Jin moon also known as Hyungjin Ass or Sean Moon. We will talk about him further in this series. He runs the infamous gun cult in Pennsylvania. And I'm recording this today on the 8th of January, 2020. And less than 48 hours ago, on the 6th of January, 2020, Sean Moon was one of the insurrectionists on the steps of the U.S. Capitol. And that's documented on his own Instagram, and beyond their own self-incriminatory Instagram feeds, there's a lot more information out there about the ins and outs of the Unification Church. This is not meant to be a full-on documentation of all of those ins and outs. This is meant to be about the contours in between. The borders of the saga of the Moon family can be found in other places, but what I'm interested in is in the borders of the tapestry, it's in the middle. It's in the detail and the nuance of the experiences, and that's what this show is about. It's about the stories of people who grew up in this environment, and it's about the subtlety and the nuance of their experience, and how those experiences have impacted them and their lives. And I hope that this very brief introduction to the Moons and the Moon family and the Unification Church can give you a little bit of understanding to bring with you into the stories that are going to follow. 